I'm turning today to Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 12 and verse 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 1. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I would not have you ignorant. Ye know that ye were Gentiles, carried away unto these dumb idols, even as ye were led. And we come in our studies in 1 Corinthians to this uh, chapter on the purpose of spiritual gifts. And especially in these days, it's of particular importance always to look carefully at these verses. The Apostle is turning again to questions that are being asked by the Corinthians. In chapter 7 and verse 1 we read, Now concerning the things whereof ye wrote to me, and he proceeds to deal with the first question, then a second, then a third, and now in chapter 12, now concerning spiritual gifts. And it's fairly obvious to us from the introduction to the chapter that he is staying with this theme of the answering of their questions. They had had confusion and disorder in the church at Corinth, a good church but with many problems, many commendations and also warnings. Sometimes the troubles in the church at Corinth are overstressed. They were serious. They were numerous. They had to be dealt with. They're covered in this epistle. But it's too easy to overstress them so that you feel this is a hopeless church and therefore it doesn't have much to say to us so far gone but they were not a hopeless church there were many powerful and strong commendations we ever remind ourselves of them by the apostle Paul so although they had their problems perhaps the majority of the people in the church apart from the tendency to divide into parties in a very immature way, perhaps the majority were very earnest and very sound. All the more important that the errors should be dealt with. So we are looking at a letter which writes to brethren, beloved of the Lord, and uh, the mistakes they made are being made even among earnest believers to this day. And we begin to look at them. This is about this chapter, particularly the revelatory and the sign gifts which God gave in those days. Now, they were given during the foundation stage of the church, of that we may be sure. The revelatory and the sign gifts were distinctive from all other gifts of the Spirit. The gifts of revelation, there were prophets in New Testament times, not very many. We can see how few in chapter 14, where the indication is given, but we'll study that in due course, that there were very few prophets in the New Testament churches. But there were prophets, New Testament prophets. We read about them particularly in the letter to the Ephesians. And they were given because the scripture 
was still being formed. The New Testament was not complete. We're looking at 1 Corinthians, part of the New Testament, just now being delivered to one church, yet to be circulated around the Christian world. 2 Corinthians was yet to come, and so were other epistles. So they didn't have the New Testament completely in their hands. Uh, Not all the Gospels had been written down yet. And so during this stage, this formative stage of the early church, while the New Testament was being completed, prophets were given with words, inspired words, true doctrines. All the doctrines and the principles and the applications given by the Spirit, which would in due course be in the completed Word of God. And then no more prophets, no more apostles inspired to write inspired epistles. The Word would be complete. No more authoritative revelation of doctrine. Now, people who were inspired to speak authoritative words had to be authenticated. People had to be sure so-and-so was truly an apostle with a special office and inspired of God to speak scripture, that so-and-so was indeed an inspired, called prophet who spoke truth. They had to be assured of that. And so, with the gifts of revelation came authenticating gifts, things that authenticated them, the sign gifts. So the apostles could do the same miracles that Christ did and the same healings. And therefore people knew that, say, they were apostles. They were inspired. They were special. They must be heeded. They had a special power and authority of direction in the churches. But when the revelation of God was complete, there were no more inspired people and therefore there were no more signs that were particularly designed to authenticate them. And now I say that from the beginning, but we shall come to all these things in due course in the scripture. But I come to a first heading this morning and let's call it this, no contradiction. While these special gifts were operating, prophets and apostles and the scriptures being unfolded church by church, while that was happening, there was no contradiction in these revelations. What a difference between this that we're going to read about here and what happens today in charismatic Pentecostal circles. Now, we don't condemn all those people. Some of them, especially some of the high-profile leaders, are unquestionably phonies and charlatans and rogues. But we cannot condemn them. Many true people of God in Pentecostal charismatic churches, and we acknowledge that. And we uh, respect them as saved by the Lord, many of them. But we think they are very mistaken in their idea that these revelatory and sign gifts are for today. They passed with the passing of the apostles. 
That's what pretty well all the Church of Christ believe worldwide down the centuries until the beginning of the 20th century, with only a few people dissenting from that. That's the traditional position. But first of all, then, there are no contradictions when you look at these early verses. The warning of the apostle, verse 2, "'Ye know that ye were Gentiles, carried away,' interesting term, so easily swayed as Gentiles by the idolaters unto dumb idols, worshipping idols that couldn't reveal any truth. They weren't channels of revelation. The gods behind them didn't really exist. And God would not have spoken through them. Dumb idols, even as ye were led, by those idolatrous teachers that you followed in the idol temples. And you believed what they said. It gave you no satisfaction. You had no union with those mythical gods. It was just a religion of fear and superstition. But now the contrast. Verse 3. Wherefore I give you to understand that no man who truly has the Spirit of God, speaking by the Spirit of God, calleth Jesus accursed. And no man can say that Jesus is the Lord, but by the Holy Ghost. That is, no man can genuinely say, and sincerely and feelingfully say, Jesus is Lord, but by the Holy Ghost. And the meaning of the verse really is this, that we acknowledge A true spiritual gift can only be given to a true believer. But then the apostle goes on. Verse 4. Now there are diversities of gifts. There are different gifts, but the same spirit. And we just pause there. That is the most important statement. The same spirit. In other words... If there is a true prophet, and of course there were in those days, he will speak things which agree perfectly with what the other true prophets say. Because there's only one spirit. That's the meaning of this statement. There are diversities of gifts, but the same spirit. If one says one thing and another says something else, then that isn't of the Spirit of God. The Spirit will never contradict himself. It's the one Spirit. You see what I mean? What happens today? This famous charismatic teacher says such and such. Another says something different. They're all having their private revelations. And since the early 1980s, there's been a kind of competition among them. Who can bring out the most uh, strikingly original things. But they're all distinctive and different. Or straight away, and we're hardly into the chapter. That cannot be authentic. The people who follow them, many may be true Christians, but this is a great mistake. There are diversities of gifts, but the same spirit. You know, in the days when there were prophets and apostles... There was only one message. Everything agreed. That's why a little later on, but we'll come to it, the apostle will say, on the platform, 
in a service, this is in these days, there are two or three prophets at most. And if something is revealed to one, he obviously declares it to his fellows. Because if the others don't agree, if they haven't had a similar light or understanding, then he must hold his peace. Because there must be agreement between them. Because there's only one spirit. But today there's so much that differs. And people are almost proud of it in charismatic circles. And they call it their different levels of giftedness and so on. But anyway, we proceed on in verse 5. And there are differences of administrations. And that word we may easily translate it ministries. There are different ministries. Well, obviously a prophet is different from an apostle. But the same Lord. There'll be a common thread. Same agreeing teaching. One teacher will be consistent with another teacher. And there, verse 6, are diversities of operations. That's an interesting word, operations. It translates a Greek term which refers to mighty operations. In other words, these are even greater miracles than, say, healings. These are extraordinary things. We'll come to them and define them in a moment where God's power is seen. But these things are um, all spontaneous as God moves. They can't be predicted. They can't be organized. People cannot say, on such and such a day, at such and such a time, we'll have a miracle meeting or a healing meeting. The Apostle Peter or the Apostle Paul, they didn't know they were going to heal a certain person moments before it happened. Their authenticating sign that would prove to the bystanders that they were specially appointed by God and inspired by him, it would come suddenly, not organized things. There are diversities of operations, but it is the same God which worketh all in all. So in those early verses, I just give this heading for interest, there is no contradiction in the message. There is agreement. The doctrines are the same, and they fit together, just as they do in the completed Bible. But then we come down to verse 7, and the theme changes a little, and we're going to be looking at verses which stress that each spiritual gift is given to serve the whole body. So the gifted people in the church of Corinth were given their particular gifts to benefit the entire church at Corinth. Indeed, the apostles were given to benefit the entire church, wherever it was. It was God's inspired word. Verse 7, the manifestation of the Spirit is given to every man to profit with all. The meaning is that it's given for all, and that's repeated in the verses that follow. 
So verses 8 and 9 and 10 stress that gifts are distributed to individuals. And this gives us an opportunity to look at them. But as we do, remember, a gift was never given for personal gratification or for personal use. A gift wasn't given to benefit the one who received it. But today, you see, they're not authentic gifts. That's exactly what they're for. A person will say to me, Oh, but I was given the gift of speaking in tongues. Well, what does that do for you? Oh, they will reply, it brings me close to God. It stirs my heart. It lifts me up. It strengthens me. It's a kind of mysterious, ecstatic experience for me. It's for me. I speak in tongues. It does something for me. But these verses will say, that's not how the gifts work. They were given for the body. So the prophet would be given a message from God a doctrine, an application of a doctrine to be preached to the whole body. Yes, the individual prophet would benefit himself, but it wasn't primarily for him, it was for all. But now the modern idea of gifts isn't the biblical teaching, it's something for me. And then the gifts are further tested in these verses. They will edify They will all build you up in understanding and truth. But if I speak personally in tongues and I don't even understand what it means, that is not building me up in truth. It is not in the Bible sense edifying me, building up my understanding, my spiritual life and grasp and living. It's something incoherent. It's just an emotion. And it's an artificial one. Because it's not for all. It's just for me. Now, well-meaning people may speak in tongues. You don't have to be saved to speak in tongues. Anybody can do it if you put your mind to it. Well-meaning people may indulge in this because their teachers have told them that it's a spiritual gift and it's important for them to do it. But it isn't the biblical gift of speaking in tongues. That was a real language. And we'll say more about that when we come to it and how it worked and how it had to be authenticated. Well, verse 8, to one is given by the Spirit the word of wisdom. It's difficult to know exactly what the Apostle means by word of wisdom. Let's break it into two. Certainly to a prophet or to an Apostle, it would presumably be an application of a doctrine that was inspired. Well, you get doctrine and application in the word. But there is a certain amount of this gift that is ongoing because... uh, In answer to prayer, any Christian might be given a measure of wisdom in their reading of the Word of God. 
We humble ourselves. We pray to God for guidance. We read the word. God will sanctify our understanding and help us. So in small form, everybody gets something of a gift of wisdom as they pray and study the word. Perhaps if you're called to teach the word of God, in answer to humble prayer, you may be given more. But I think here, the apostle is particularly talking about the gifts that marked out apostles and prophets. The word of wisdom, to another the word of knowledge, because the scriptures were not complete, as I keep reminding you. So a prophet would be given a doctrine, and he would teach it to the assembly. In verse 9, to another faith by the same spirit. Well, every Christian has a measure of faith. The scripture tells us so. This probably refers to the special faith that was often given to the apostles. Take the apostle Paul, the shipwreck, and yet he's given this faith to believe and this understanding that all are going to be delivered. And he announces it in the midst of the storm as a special gift of foresight and faith. To another, the gifts of healing. Well, who received that? Well, the scriptures tell us repeatedly, by the hands of the apostles, by the hands of the apostles, by the hands of the apostles. The charismatics, the Pentecostals don't notice that. The gifts of healing were given by the hands of the apostles. To listen to even our friends in the charismatic movement and their understanding, you would think that healings happened by the hands of different people all the time in the New Testament church. That's what they tell you. Oh, healings and prophecies were going on all around you. It was constant. That's what their teachers tell them. But when you read the scripture, the data doesn't support it. The data is quite different. It tells us that at Antioch, there were only three prophets, and including Paul, an apostle. Paul is going to tell us in future chapters in this very epistle, never more than three should prophesy in an assembly. So there were very few. There were not many. They were thin on the ground, sparsely spread. But here it is, to another the gifts of healing. That was only to the apostolic band who needed special authentication. We have healing today, but not through my hands, through prayer to God, through looking to him. And we never know whether we were healed by God blessing through the medicine or whether we were healed by his direct touch of goodness. But we pray, and we pray for one another. And in the life of any church where people are lifted up in prayer, as you look back across the years, you will see many instances 
of quite remarkable healings and recoveries. But nobody put on a healing pantomime. Nobody masqueraded as a special healer. So there's healing, but not the sign gift which was designed to authenticate the apostles. Verse 10, to another the working of miracles. They're different from healings, as when presumably Saul or Paul struck the sorcerer with blindness, the casting out of demons, or Peter at one judgmental word given to him by God and Ananias and Sapphira consecutively died with the judgment of God upon them. It was apostolic era. To another discernment, discerning of spirits. I suppose that would include not only the discerning of prophets, but also the discerning of travelling preachers and so forth. Now we have the word. If somebody is going around the churches preaching, what gains them acceptance? There were many travelling preachers in those days. What gains them acceptance? Well, the doctrines of the word. Do they assent to them? Do they teach them? Where do they stand? But in those days, in the apostolic period, in the early stages of the church, there were some of those apostles, prophets or others, had a gift of discernment. And God enabled them to know if a person was genuine or not. To another, diverse kinds of tongues, real languages, which they'd never learned at school. To another, the interpretation of tongues. We'll come to that. There was a wonderful system in New Testament times whereby the person who spoke in a real language, and it was a sign to convince Jews, presumably when there were no Jews present, there was no tongue speaking. The apostle says it was a sign for the Jews that they would believe. But... Uh, when a person had the gift of tongues, somebody else would be given a gift whereby they could interpret that tongue and say exactly what it meant. And any bystander who understood that tongue would affirm it also. The tongue speaker had to be authenticated. Otherwise, he mustn't speak. It's all set out. We shall come to it. Verse 11, but all these worketh that one and the selfsame spirit, dividing to every man severally as he will. And uh, it confirms the teaching of all the verses, no contradiction and the purpose is for the whole body. Now down to verse 12 and there's a theme added. This is for the whole body in which the members are mutually dependent one upon the other. And this applies to us today. Prophets are past, apostles are past, but these verses describe us too. Verse 12, as the body is one and hath many members, and all the members of that 
one body being many, a one body, so also is Christ. We may have some friends here this morning, and you love the Lord, and you found him, and you walk with him, and he proves himself to you, but you're not part of the church. Maybe you worship with the people of God, but you don't participate with them in anything. You're not a member. You've never joined a spiritual family. You don't throw in your energies and your lot. You don't play your part. Maybe on the fringe. And yet you're a seasoned believer. And you love him and God has dealt with you. Now these verses are also for you. Listen to the impossibility of this. For as the body is one, and hath many members, and all the members of that one body, being many, are one body, so also is Christ. Didn't you know you were meant to be part of a body? You're an arm, or a leg, or an eye, or an ear, and you're missing. You're missing from the inner workings of the church from the service of the body. You've exempted yourself, excused yourself. It may be shy, constitutionally, or there may be some other reason. You may be too much of an individualist. That, that can be a gift very often. A person is blessed with a lot of private, personal initiative. But that gift has got the better of you. And you're actually an isolated individualist. You don't make friends very easily. You don't share very easily. You don't teamwork. You're not in the church. But this is what God has meant. Your gift has become spoiled because it's gone to your head and it determines your whole policy of life. Could that be? Well, look at these verses. Verse 13. For by one Spirit are we all baptized into one body. At conversion you had the baptism of the Spirit. But that wasn't an entirely personal thing. It wasn't just for your benefit. It was so that you could function in the body. It was to design you for fellowship and mutual cooperation to make your contribution and to receive ministry in various ways from others. For by one spirit are we all baptized into one body. And look at what Paul puts first. Whether we be Jews or Gentiles. Well, before conversion, these Gentiles didn't have anything to do with Jews. Jews and Gentiles looked at each other across smoking gun barrels. They didn't harmonize at all. But now they've been baptized into the church where they're one family together. And they share together as though they're the same. Whether we be bond or free, before conversion, the free man who had a station in life and a position, the Roman citizen, the upper middle classes, didn't have anything to do with the working people and the slaves, except to direct them 
They weren't familiar with them. They weren't friendly with them. But after conversion, they're brothers and sisters in the Lord, whether we be bond or free, and have been all made to drink into one spirit. And in the Church of Christ, that is to be exercised. For the body, verse 14, is not one member but many. Verse 15, does this apply to us? If the foot shall say, because I am not the hand, I am not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? You don't understand, Pastor. I'm me. I'm an individual. I have my own views. I like to propound my own views, whether people agree with me or not. I don't want to work in a team. If I join this department or that department of the work, I want to guarantee that in that department I can actually be an individual and go off by myself and do it my way on my own. Well, my, I may have gifts of initiative and so on, they've got the better of me. There I'm not obeying the scripture. And if the ear shall say, because I am not the eye, I am not of the body, this is impossible. It's not how God has made you. It's not what God has designed you for. He's given you only part of the understanding, part of the equipment, and some of your help you derive from others in the spiritual family. Then a different angle, verse 17. If the whole body were an eye, where were the hearing? Yes, put it another way, says Paul. Are you an individualist? Or supposing everybody in the church was just like you? You've got your gift. Maybe your gift is to talk. What if everybody in the church had the same gift? And everybody talked all the time at each other, past each other, expressing their views and opinions and analysis of this and analysis of that. My life would be impossible. Even our tabernacle fellowship would become unbearable. You've got to have different people, different gifts, different capacities, different insights, different abilities. How could you function if you had all preachers and no shepherds and no personal witness and no teaching of children and no, of course there's a distribution of gifts and abilities and in the church we value and appreciate each other. Verse 18, But now hath God set the members, every one of them in the body, as it hath pleased him. And it pleased God to save you and to set you in a certain place and you're not there that's very sad and if they were all one member verse 19 where were the body it couldn't function how many churches can't function because the people who were supposed to take up the position in different places in the church are not doing that. So you'll go to a church sometimes and you'll say, where is their evangelism? Where is their visitation? Where is their Sunday school? Where is their witness? 
Nothing is happening. Is it for this reason that people don't understand this passage? And verse 21, the eye cannot say unto the hand, I have no need of thee. Time is running away and uh, none of my clocks are working this morning on the pulpit, but uh, I think we've got time to look at these great verses. Uh, Look at verse uh, 22. Nay, much more, those members of the body which seem to be more feeble are necessary. Whatever is the apostle talking about? What are the members of the human body that seem to be more feeble? Well, there are various suggestions made and they're all valid. What about the brain? It's feeble in the sense that it's so vulnerable. So it's put into the skull and it's protected by bone and so on. And it's vital and you can't live without it. And it's the most sophisticated organ we have. Yet in a sense it's the most feeble and vulnerable and wants special protection. And we've got people like that in the church. Maybe you can talk about the elderly. The most vulnerable, the most subject to illness, the frail. I'm speaking for myself. The elderly. But it's among the elderly you get the best prayer warriors. And you get the strength and power of the church. So we have special respect for the elderly, for the seniors. Of course we do. And you've got the lungs and the heart. How vulnerable. You can't do without them. Vital to you. And what about the emotions? Or say the fingers. So easily damaged. So easily disregarded. Try living a few hours without them. So even the least attractive looking members may be the most precious the least apparently outwardly gifted may be the most valuable and we honour one another and value each other and then I go down to verse 25 that there should be no schism in the body but that the members should have the same care one for another. And here's the test with which we'll close. Verse 26. Whether one member bodily parts suffer, all the members suffer with it. Or one member be honoured, all the members rejoice with it. Brilliant illustration. I need hardly say that applies to the human body. If you have gout in your foot, you are altogether out of sorts. You seem to feel it everywhere. If somebody were to come up to you in the middle of a gout attack in your big toe and say, what are you making such a fuss about? Your hands are all right, your arms are all right, Your trunk is all right and your abdomen, most of your body is all right, therefore you're making a great fuss. 
you wouldn't find that very convincing. But what a test for the church do we feel for each other and pray for each other. And if one is honoured, are we envious or are we glad for the body and for the one who has been rescued, blessed, honoured in some way? These are tremendous things. And we've been looking this morning at true spiritual gifts have no contradiction. Therefore the whole body, no spiritual gift was authentic in those days, nor today, if it wasn't for everyone in the church, teaching everyone. And finally, that we are a body and we are separately gifted to be mutually beneficial in the one church of Christ. Let's close our thinking singing a hymn which prepares us for the Lord's Supper. It's hymn 249. Hymn 249. A hymn of Gethsemane. Many woes had he endured. <laughs>